0: Presence, certainly, we have no capabilities without the sufficiency of your all sufficient power, helping us, making us stronger, making us more vigilant, making us more determined in the aspirations of our faith to live for you, to rise higher above all the voices that speak from demonic to people trying to vie for our attention somehow to hinder our course. We trust in your faithfulness today. We have faith in that faithfulness. Praise God. Let's clap to the Lord this morning. Hallelujah. We shall read from The Acts of the Apostles, chapter number two. Acts chapter number two. Very, very familiar textual reading to all of us that have been associated with Pentecost and the Pentecostal experience. Acts chapter number two, beginning reading of verse number one. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues, like as a fire, and it set upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised, abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak. Galileans, the word confounded in verse six comes from a Greek connotation that denotes perplexity or being perplexed. I want to lift as a subject title and extrapolate from this text, Pentecost, perplexed and amazed. Pentecost, perplexed and amazed. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying, Amen. You may be seated. When we open the... The graphiae of scripture arise, fall upon the pages beginning to discover through arduous, diligent study, a treasure trove of truth, of a depth that cannot merely be perceived by a casual, perusal or from the perspective of the naked eye, but can only be appreciated when one has um, taken his spiritual shovel and began to dig deeper into the ore, into the mind, into the earth, into the heart, into the core of Scripture. Search the Scriptures, the Master, that the Didascalos advised, for in them you think you have eternal life. Search there is connotes many references, as a sailor would with his binoculars search and look across the waters, or as one would stand on the shoreline waiting for the gold and our silver ships to come in. He would look with eyes high above, searching for those vessels to come into shore, search the scriptures as a man who goes to mine the riverbeds for the ore and precious gold and precious stones, searching diligently, seeking somehow to find the gold nuggets that are of such tremendous value and worth and pricelessness to him. Because in the word of God, Christ understood there are things that you will not find by just speed reading scripture, but you must dig deeper and search. Find one nugget, dig a little deeper and find yet another. Because this book is absolutely unfathomable, unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. There is no bottom to the barrel of this book called the Bible. You may be exhausted, but the scripture is not exhausting. And when we come to our meager ends of exhaustion in the soul and spirit and inertia in the mind it is necessary for us to crack open the book again and seek and search this element this writing of 66 books that have been compiled in this canon that is absolutely inexhaustible that will breathe new life and give new revived revigoration into our spirits For the Bible is a God-breathed book. It is the breath of God that breathed life into the hearts and minds of holy men of old who spake and wrote and penned as they were moved upon by the Holy Ghost. It is the dutiful obligation of the preacher to study to show himself approved unto God as a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The duty of the minister is to be a workman who labors over the bench of study in his workshop, whether digging through references or commentaries or just merely digging deeper into the the bed of the book he must, through careful, arduous, studiousness, find those references, those pearls of great price of truth that either come out of his own experience or come out of the experience of men that are the characters in the book to somehow present truth in a fresh manner in a more dynamic situation and setting to enlighten the minds of people. Amen. There's nothing worse than hearing someone present a sawdust sandwich or to preach a repeat of what they heard somebody else extrapolate and preach it now. Amen. But I today want to be a workman, studying over the lines, connecting all the dots together, digging into the Scripture, searching, calling out, and coaxing. The hidden aspects or the mysterions of spiritual revelation to present them in a dynamic fashion to elicit a response out of the mind and spirit of people. Paul prayed for the Ephesians that the spirit of wisdom and revelation would enlighten the eyes of their understanding that they might not know what is the hope of his calling. That is the impetus of the minister today to enlighten the eyes of people's understanding. So that they can better see with clarity and not face the ob- obnulation of muddleness or of skewed perspective, because what is declared across the pulpit is what will be received into the hearts of men. And every saint of every church that you visit, all of them take on the traits and the characteristics of the pastor that delivers Bible lessons and sermons to them on a week. Basis. They become one with him as through his preaching he molds them and fashions them. And it is a shameful thing that when the Word of God is being presented in a falsified manner or in a way that is damaging the text by taking it out of context which forms essentially a pretext that people's minds are being warped as they're being molded by men that are mishandling the word of righteousness. Today, I do not want to be found guilty of doing such, but somehow I want to articulate, amen, the engrafted word which is able to, to save your soul that I would present it with meekness because if I present it with meekness in a spirit of righteousness in truth then you can absorb it and receive it with the self same meekness why some saints only respond to aggressiveness or the aggressive undertone of preaching that only mandates the specificity of conductivity and standards but they will not respond to a message about the love and the commitment of the cross of Christ who died for the sins of man somehow to save sinners is because the man that's preaching to them is molding them out of the shape and the design of an aggressive, bombastic spirit that is not of the spirit of truth, that is not of the spirit of righteousness we had better get as enthusiastic about the love of the cross as we do about the codes of ethicality and the codes of righteousness. Otherwise, our preaching is in vain. And the gospel, we declare, is a self-made, self-absorbed, turned in on ourselves, the concoction that comes out of our own human spirit that is not founded in the Word of God come to talk to you today there is so much of depth of profundity it's found in the scripture that if a man will just study there is a message in every verse there is a train and a line of thought in every verse in every chapter in every pericope, in every scriptural contextualization and setting. There are so many authors of this book, men who through faith and persistent diligence, they took pen and began to, with the blot of ink right on parchment, with such, assiduousness with such pragmatism with with weariness even of the flesh itself for much study is a weariness to the flesh the wise men said but nevertheless these men wearied as they worked with pen over parchment to write the Dead Sea Scrolls to write the sacred holy scriptures in Hebrew, Aramaic, and in Greek. We understand that the New Testament um, was written in Greek. And one of the most prominent authors of the New Testament canonical address is the writer Luke who went to medical school at an institute there in Athens, Greece, whose life in so many ways was should be contributed or was contributory to the financial capabilities of the man by the name of Theophilus. In Luke, when he writes his gospel narrative, as well as the book of Acts, Many scholars deem that the book of Acts or the Acts of the Apostles should be called the second book of Luke. Because in both of these these, um, writings, in the prologue of which, Luke addresses the treatises to a man by the name of Theophilus, who he calls most excellent. Luke wants all of us to know he was a Greek and he wrote both of his writings to a Greek, from a Greek to a Greek, whereas in many other instances it was from a Jew to a Jew. But here it is from a Greek, a philosophical mind, an academic, a doctor, to another Greek who was Influential and highly capable financially. And Luke addresses with such endearment. The life and the man, Theophilus, whose name means to be a friend. Because Luke found a friendship, a camaraderie in Theophilus that he did not find in any other man. Only until Luke became in complicity or in a symbiotic relationship at a later time with the Apostle Paul. With whom he journeyed on all of Paul's Mediterranean seafaring journeys to preach the gospel to other continents of Asia Minor. Did did Luke find such a friend as he had in Theophilus? Because scholars tell us why the endearment from Luke to Theophilus, because... Theophilus was the man who financed Luke when Luke was going to medical school in the institute at Athens, Greece. He was the man that put the money on the table. He was the man that put the coinage on the counter to finance this young man so that he could fulfill a dream and go to medical school and pass the test and take on the profession that he always wanted to pursue. Amen. Thank God for people who see the greatness in us, who see the potentiality brimming over in our hearts, whether it be societally, theologically, or spiritually. Under any condition, under any criterion, that they will make an investment in our lives. That they will take of the blessing that God has given to them and pour into us and make an investment into our academic pursuits or into our spiritual ministry because deep in the heart of every one of us, there is a dream, there is a goal, there is a desire, there is a passion that beats at the the very base and core of our hearts and without the ministry of theophilus without the capabilities of people that can open doors for us through their financial capabilities we will never see the fulfillment of our dreams to the fullest extent that God has designed for us. And some say that God works by arbitration, that he does not need nor want the assistance of man to help other men. That is contrary to the rudimentary of scripture, because we see a young man by the name of Joseph who was a dreamer, who was falsely accused of committing infidelity with the wife of Potiphar in the house who was then in prison where he was shackled for some 13 years. But a day came while well, yet he was in the bondage of that prison house that he came into contact with a butler and a baker, both of whom were being tried by the Pharaoh for apparent indiscretion somewhere along the way for making a miscue, for taking a misstep, for doing something that has honored the dignity and the prestigiousness of the Pharaoh. We understand that Joseph the dreamer, that once he came, came in contact with these other men who then began to dream. The spirit of the dreamer began to have such an impregnated effect upon other men that were also in bondage with him. Amen. We're not the only ones going through trial. We're not the only ones going through pain. We're not the only ones suffering sicknesses and setbacks along the derrick of the path of our spiritual pilgrimage in life. But God has allowed us to be in certain situations where we can come in contact with other people in the spirit of the dream that still lives in our hearts. Though it seems that what we dreamed is vague and ambiguous and will never be fulfilled but when we come into covenantal relationship with them, that when we develop an association with them and tie in and lock in with them what God has planted in us, what God has placed in us is also going to be coaxed out of them and then dreamers going to share dream with dreamer and dreamer back with another dreamer and before you know it, we're all Going to have the same common goal. We're all going to march to the same beat of the drum of the divine purposes of God that He has predestinated for the human existence. And Joseph shared with them all that was in his heart. These two men had influence in the throne in a place where Joseph did not have influence. They were temporarily locked up for an apparent overture that Pharaoh would try. Eventually he hung the baker who was the one that would knead the dough to make the bread and presented it to the pharaoh, but he restored the butler who held the goblet or the cup of wine and presented it to the pharaoh. There is a beautiful typology in, in that particular in setting because the baker represents the kneading and the dough and the and the togetherness of the word of life. Amen. The but the butler on the other hand represents the spirit of God or the wine or the flow that glistens in the cup. There is a generation today that wants to hang the baker. They want to kill the Word of God. They don't want to hear the Word of God preached with fervency and power. They just want to have a flow of the Spirit. But I'm here to tell you today, there cannot be a genuine, authentic manifestation and flow of the Holy Ghost unless there is the communication of the bread of life. So Pharaoh, on his birthday celebration, he hung the baker. But Joseph told all his heart unto the butler. He said, remember me. Remember me when you are restored. Oh, hallelujah. Amen. We must ever keep in reminiscence and remembrance what others have shared with us while yet they're in the dungeon so that when we are restored, we can communicate to a higher power what a brother or a sister shared with us in the lowest place of their life in the hurts and pains. But the butler unfortunately forgot Joseph for two more years. Well, Joseph yet wandered in his wounds Pined in his pains, feeling the bruises of the shackles on his wrist and of the iron chanks and Chains that were on his legs. Amen. There, sitting, wondering, a dreamer, not knowing if he was ever going to see the totality of the fulfillment of God's purposes for his life. But all of a sudden, now Pharaoh begins to dream. Now everybody's dreaming. From Joseph to the butler and the baker, now the spirit of which has gotten into the mind and the spirit of the heart of the Pharaoh. And the butler said, I remember this day my faults, O Pharaoh, for while I was yet... Periodically in the dungeon I met a young man by the name of Joseph who was a Hebrew who was able to interpret my dreams unto me. And Pharaoh said you go and you call for him. Hallelujah. And the Bible says that instantly when Pharaoh called for Joseph that Joseph washed his face. He changed his garment. He took his prison garment off because he understood this was was the last day he was gonna be sitting in prison in the dungeon. He was about to go into a new dimension, and you cannot wear an old garment into a new dimension, you must take it off like blind Bartimaeus. You must cast it aside because that garment identifies you as a beggar. And he said, When he began to cry out, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. He was saying, I'm no longer gonna be a beggar, and i I'm gonna give you a token because I'm taking this beggar's garment off. I'm no longer gonna make my living by crying and begging. I I have found the answer. I I have met the Son of David, Jesus Christ. Praise God! And so, because relationally there was a symbiosis, symbiosis between Joseph and the butler, that relationship that was developed in the dungeon, opened the door and made a way for Joseph to come to the palace before the throne of Pharaoh who then put his signet ring upon Joseph's finger that represented authority and dominion in the kingdom. He gave him the second chariot to ride in. and Then he clothed Joseph in his own vestures. Oh, hallelujah. He gave him a brand new identity of empowerment and spiritual authority. And so Luke, why does he have such an honor? Agape and an affection not just a J, not just a Ludos, but an agape, a heart of love for a man by the name of Theophilus because it was when Luke was at his lowest when he was most broke financially that Theophilus was a good friend. A friend that didn't just speak with words but he showed by deed and by action and praxis and he made a way for the young man. Oh hallelujah we have so many young men that are searching not just for the financial resources of another Theophilus to give them money but perhaps for an elder who would be in the capacity of a spiritual father who would be a mentor to their ministry to coax out and develop all that God has indigenously placed into them but Paul understood the pain of a young up and coming ministry we have not many fathers and therefore we're seeing the delinquency and the development of spiritual sons who are trying to navigate the unadvocable, trying to set a course, almost blinded and being blindsided by the devil all the while because fathers will not be fathers, but fathers develop frustration out of jealousy because of the residence of the anointing of God upon spiritual sons. Luke his heart brims. He doesn't just write to us out of the academic advantage of the genius of his mind. He doesn't just write to us out of the plethora of his mastery of all the Koine Grecian terms that he uses so aptly and deftly in both the Gospel of Luke and in. The book of the Acts of the Apostles. These two form almost one, again, one manuscript. We see Luke as he addresses Theophilus in the opening of his gospel narrative. And then he begins to move into the exhorted consequences of consecration for the Aaronic priesthood, particularly in a man by the name of Zacharias whose wife was Elizabeth, who was of a daughter of Aaron, who was in the lineage of the Levitical priesthood and family. And the paucity or the dearth or the mark against them both is that they were both old and well stricken in years. And it ceased to be after the manner of women for Elizabeth, who was, who now, whose womb was shriveled who from all natural perspectives would never give birth to children if she and her husband were to visit Dr. Luke in his medical office he would not have anything that he could give them medically there would be nothing that he could provide or prescription that he could feel f- that he could feel that would open up a barren womb especially that of a lady who was of tremendous age Oh, hallelujah, they were both gray-headed. They were now walking with stooped shoulders toward the grave. Cat almost to the spirit of defeatism because they had passed the prime of their youth and never conceived children or given birth thereof. But they both, even though she was Barren, and it ceased to be after the manner of Zacharias to father children that they were blameless. Barren but blameless. They were old. And could it be that there is a generation of Pentecost that comes as a derivative of a long, long time ago that is of the product of a first generation on the other side of Azusa Street, on the other side of the outpouring of a Spirit of God at sawdust brush harbors, a generation, a first generation of initiation that gave us all the spiritual imperatives and initiatives they are old and gray headed in the spirit amen. But yet even though that they are blameless they are barren but it is the will of God to minister to an older generation of Pentecost that somehow he would open up the womb of them that abound by the spirit of traditionalism that they would get postured in the Spirit and that they who are a product of the Aaronic, the ministerial lineage that there would be old preachers and old preachers' wives who would give birth to a spiritual revival, who would give birth to a little John baby who would leap in the womb of a church that they pastored for years. It's not the will of God that Aaron and Elizabeth strike and find the grave before the will of God is done in their hearts. Hearts. All right. And Luke begins to pour through his intellect into that story as a backdrop, backdrop to serve to another pericope of a young virgin by the name of Mary, who was, who had never known a man, who had never been intimate with her espoused husband. Joseph, she conceived a child and it was by the overshadowing of the Holy Ghost by the sperm of which conceived an egg in her, in her body. And she conceiving would give birth to a son whose name would be called Jesus. But in that chapter, we see the old church typified by Zacharias and Elizabeth, gray-headed and many, many years behind. But we see a new church coming on. Amen. An up-and-coming generation on a new frontier. Typified in the Virgin Mary. Oh, hallelujah. There is a new Pentecost that has never... Known what it's like to have spiritual intimacy with the Father in a place of prayer that doesn't know what it's like to conceive and give birth to a spiritual offspring but God designed it that when Elizabeth conceived and she was five months pregnant she came to the house of Mary and when Mary the young girl told the old, old Spencer woman that she herself was going to conceive and give birth to a child the babe John leaped in the womb of Elizabeth and was immediately filled with the Holy Ghost oh hallelujah God is bringing two generations together in this hour he's bringing the generation of old on the other side of the brush harbor and he's bringing a new and up and coming generation epitomized by Mary together as one and he's going to conceive and birth the self same thing In the womb of the old generation, as well as in the womb of the new generation, we're both going to give birth to revival, we're both going to give birth to bouncy baby boys in the spirits because God has purposed for there to be a merger of two generations to fulfill in execution of his purposes and promises. Luke, so deftly, with such a vast vocabulary in the Greek, begins to work with terms, begins to syntactically and scholastically work with terms and work over words while yet he called out the worlds within words he brings to our attention that after the birth of the baptist in the birth of the christ jesus Understand contextually, he wants his readers, whether they be Christian or Jew, to understand that John the Baptist was the first Baptist who was baptizing his own disciples in the Jordan River and others abroad. His baptism was just in water. It would never bring or come unto fire amen that Jesus Christ was the first Pentecostal because his baptism was not just by the immersion in water but it would portend and come unto fire Hallelujah. It is almost unorthodox and yet quite incredible to me how the first Baptist baptized the first Pentecostal. Hallelujah. The first Baptist was of the last oh, the last priest in the order of Aaron. Amen. That came out of the lineage of the Levitical priesthood. But the first Pentecostal was not after the Baptist lineage, but he was after the order of Melchizedek. Amen. Who had no beginning neither did he have end of days abideth a priest continually and the old order baptized the new order. First Baptist baptized the first pit Pentecostal, and when the first Pentecostal went down in the water and he came up out of that water in the Jordan which is indicative of transition there was a transition from a Baptist methodology to a Pentecostal methodology when the Baptist baptized the Pentecostal and the dove the spirit descended in the form in the body in the shape of a dove upon the first Pentecostal what dove the dove represent? It represents the sanctity and the purity and the holiness of the Spirit of God. Oh, Oh, hallelujah. Amen. The dove never descended upon the first Baptist, but it came down upon the first Pentecostal. It was an indicative token of the Spirit of God that was to come on the day of Pentecost. Jesus was full of the Holy Ghost, and he was full of power. John was full of the Holy Ghost but he was not full of the immeasurability of a selfsame power because his baptism was only unto water but Christ's baptism the philosophy of which would be under fire in order for something to be under fire there's got to be an element of power I'm thankful today that I'm not a part of the Baptist church I'm not a part of the Methodist church I'm not a part of a Presbyterian group I am a Pentecostal he has baptized me in water and I've come to the fire and the fire has purged and the fire has sanctified my mind my heart my tongue yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. and so Luke deftly and sagaciously frames the initial pericope of a Baptist methodology and a Pentecostal methodology in the two cousins of John and Jesus Oh, hallelujah and the Baptist was imprisoned where he was beheaded oh the Baptist lost his headship because anything that does not go beyond just the sprinkling or the dipping of water will always lose its headship amen but the first Pentecostal never lost his head nobody ever rolled it because he had all power and he had all authority. And he had all dominion He kept his mind Amen Religiosity Amen will not help you keep your mind You will lose it because of The strife of life And because of the distortion And the perversion of how they Purvey and convey the scripture But if you want to keep your mind you got to include yourself In a Pentecostal experience And say I'm not gonna stop until I'm speaking in tongues as the Spirit of God gives the utterance. All right. Praise the Lord. Anything other than a Holy Ghost infilling is gonna cause one to lose his head and lose his mind. And people can always imprison what they can control, and it's obvious they could control the Baptist. But not even death itself could control the first Pentecostal. Hallelujah. Because the first Pentecostal was, he went into the wilderness tempted of the devil for the days, came out of the wilderness in the dunamis, or the power of the spirit, and then matriculating through his life in his perspective journey with his face set toward his ultimate purpose at the cross of Calvary. He was beaten at the whipping post. He was stripped. He was slapped. He was blindfolded. He was spat upon. Amen. He was buried in the tomb, and on the third day he rose again you can't keep a good Pentecostal down. There is a power that's latent in every heart and every mind of us. We cannot be defeated. We cannot be conquered. We cannot be overcome. I don't care how much the adversary rages. I don't care how much the art nemesis of our soul boast. So very proud for me. Amen. We are Pentecostal and we are not ashamed. We are Pentecostal, and we got the ability to call upon his name in the midnight hour. Death cannot defeat us, the devil cannot snatch our life away. We're in the hands of Jesus Christ, and He said, No man can pluck you out of my hand. That's the truth. amen. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Father. But the devil can pluck the Baptist. The devil can pluck the sincere seeking Presbyterian and the devil can pluck the Mennonite and the devil can pluck the Catholic because they're not rooted and grounded in the doctrinal basis of an apostolic Pentecostal experience. All right. That's right. So Luke sets the stage in his gospel narrative, introducing religiosity in the Baptist and relationship in the Pentecostal. Religiosity was subservient to relationship. Religiosity bowed and paid homage to relationship, not relationship to religiosity. Pentecost is not a religion. Pentecost is a relationship. Because Pentecost is an experience God. that a man or a woman has with the resurrected spirit of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Praise God. I must hurry on and hasten. Understand that Pentecost was called the Feast of Weeks or Shavuot. It was 50 days after Passover. That. On the heels of the barley harvest was then the gathering of the wheat harvest. During this feast, this principal feast, one of three, that every male Jew 20 years old and upward was obligated to come to, he could not for any reason bow out and not take the journey because there were repercussions if he did so. And so we see all of these different nationalities and ethnicities from italy to the across the mediterranean to turkey coming together On the day of Pentecost. All of these nationalities. Now understand the Feast of Weeks or Shavuot. Was established in Exodus chapter number 19. When Moses went up into the top or summit of Mount Sinai. And God set boundaries about the mount. So that people could not breach the boundary to come in. lest If they did they would be instantly killed or shot through with a dart. And there were thunderings, there was loud noises, and there was lightnings. Many scholars deem and believe that the thunderings were none other than the voice of God. In fact, they say, the he- the Hebrews do, or the Orthodox Jews do, that God's voice spoke in 70 different dialects during his speaking in the summit of Sinai when he gave the Torah or the teaching or the Pentateuch to Moses on tablets of stone that Moses would take down to the people and he would ask them if they are going to fulfill and obey all that God commands and of course we know they said all that the Lord has said we will do what is peculiar to me is that during the establishment of the ceremonial feast or Shavuot Pentecost that 3,000 people died. But when you come to the law of full mention in Acts chapter number 2 and you skip down past verse number 38 after Peter preaches Pentecost's first sermon, 3,000 souls were added unto the church. 3,000 died in the law of first mention, but 3,000 were added in the law of full mention Because this was when Pentecost was fully come I said fully come it is also imperative that we understand that during the feast of Passover there was only supposed to be unleavened bread in the homes of the Jews no man was to allow there to be any leaven because a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump the leaven of sin and malice and unrighteousness contaminated anything that it was exposed to and so it was their obligation to clean their houses and make sure there was no leaven in their bread but 50 days later at the feast of shuviot or pentecost when the high priest would make atonement or sacrifice he would take he would offer what's called a heave offering in which he would heave unto the Lord with a voice of triumphancy for the law that was given in Exodus chapter 19 in an act of thankfulness for all that God had done for the nation of Israel he heaved it up unto the Lord amen and then he would take Two loaves one loaf in one hand and another loaf in the other and wave them as a wave offering before the Lord but what is peculiar to me is that those two loaves at Shavuot had leaven in the bread there was sin or malice in the dough in the baked bread that he was waving before the Lord one loaf was a Gentile loaf and the other loaf was a Jew Loaf that is a typology because on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Ghost fell, when the pneuma or the breath of the Spirit of God breathed into the repository of the 120 in the upper room, amen. God, essentially, the great high priest, was taken a Gentile loaf and he was taken a Jewish loaf in which both had yeast in which both had leaven and spots the impurity was in both ethnicities and nationalities but by his spirit he was going to coalesce and bring the two loaves together and Defy the vessels of the Jews and sanctify the vessels of the Gentiles and make them pure by the power of the Holy Ghost and today he has broken down the middle wall of partition that everybody whether you be Jew or Gentile bond or free we all have access into the same spirit we all can partake regardless of our sin regardless of our unrighteousness that is not a contingency here but when we come before the throne of grace no matter the spot or the stain he's already brought us together as one and he has given us the first rights of spiritual inheritances by giving us the baptism of the Holy Ghost therefore let us come boldly before the throne of grace That we may obtain mercy And find help in the time of need oh, yes. Lord. He has brought the Jews And the Gentiles together into one perfect Unified coalescence Of a sanctified body That is and made up of many different members. There is also another essentiality that we must understand according to the ramifications of this text that there were a hundred and twenty that Jesus commanded to go to the upper room and wait for the promise of the Father which said he you have heard of me for John the Baptist baptized under water but I'm the first Pentecostal and I'm about to baptize you under fire so you go and wait Ten days, 40 days interval, the glorified Christ appeared unto them. Ten days after the spirit of which would come in an all-consuming fashion. But what is significant is that the numeric 120 is not just a word that is a multiplication of 12. But it is significant because Jewish sages tell us specifically that in order for there to be a synagogue established in any province or realm in the land of Jerusalem or Samaria or Judea there had to be 120 men that came together in order to sanction the establishment of another house of worship, of another house of prayer where they would read the scriptures on every Sabbath day. Oh hallelujah, what was God doing? By, By establishing and sending 120 he was going to establish a new synagogue but it was not going to be after the ritualistic ways of the jews but it was going to be a house of worship and a place of prayer where his spirit was going to prevail where his spirit was going to come down as cloven tongues of fire And Luke understood that because in his gospel he connects the continuity factor by writing how Jesus went into the synagogue on the Sabbath and read from the prophecy of Isaiah and said the spirit of the Lord is upon me he began to repeat the list of Isaiah's prophecy and then as the the minister of the day after he read the scriptures he sat down and gave the book into the hand of the minister oh hallelujah I said he gave the book into the hand of the preacher Thank God there are men in whose hands the book is given that know how to will it and deal it that know how to preach it with logicality and also with spiritual authority that know the academics as well as the apostolic fundamentals of the book somehow to awaken the souls of men and so what was God doing on the day of Pentecost when it was fully come they were all with one accord in one place. In other words, one accord is indicative of having a self-same mindset of agreeance. He said if two or three shall agree as touching anything, whatever they shall ask it shall be done. But how much more when you get 120 together to establish a synagogue, a spiritual house of worship that they would also agree in one and have a mindset God wants to do Something phenomenal He wants to give this generation Another Pentecost But it's only going to happen When we fully come to Pentecost And when we fully come to congruence About a mindset And say we've come for one reason And one reason, reason only And that is to worship And that is to glorify And that is to magnify The name of Jesus hallelujah praise god and so the feast of shavuot was the fulfillment of what god established in mount sinai in the first feast of pentecost there the law was written on tablets of stone, but here the Spirit of God, the hand of which was going to inscribe the law in the hearts and the minds of men. I want to bring out a few points that I think I think are noteworthy in this text, many of which suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. I want you to know that Pentecost still has a certain ring and tone and sound too much. One of which is the sound of prayer. You cannot have Pentecost if you don't have prayer. For we read a little bit further. And when they began to pray, the house was shaken. There was a literal eruption in the house where all were assembled in prayer. That even as they dwelt ten days in the upper room, they persistently prayed. Amen. Another sound of Pentecost is praise. Let us offer unto him the fruit of our lips giving praise unto his name amen the sacrifice of praise in other words it's not for convenience alone whether you feel it or not he's still worthy praise truly becomes a sacrifice when you're sick in body praise becomes a sacrifice when you've done everything you can do and you still don't have enough money but still he's worthy to be praised it's one of the sounds of Pentecost that needs to echo across the corners of our churches and their halls that the world would know that he still reigns on the throne. Oh, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Amen. Where they were sitting. Notice the posture. They weren't standing. They weren't walking back and forth in a hurried pace of prayer. Power walking. They were sitting patiently waiting trying to bring their flesh under control and stay postured in a sitting position in reverential reverence to the spirit of God that they were expecting the promise of which to come upon them and then it says in the text that there appeared unto them split tongues like as a fire the element of fire which was the promise of which Jesus would the first Pentecost would baptize they that came on the day of Pentecost fire pure and fire purges Isaiah said that when there was discerned to be iniquity in his lips that this seraphim took a coal freshly hot from the, from the fires of the brazen altar and it touched the lips of the prophet and they were purged Amen God wants to purge our lips He wants to purify our hearts and sanctify And yet we see that this dimension of fiery, of the spirit like a fiery split-tongued steed, it sits upon those that are sitting. Oh, hallelujah. It didn't stand on them. It sat on them that were sitting. Posture, answer the posture the posture of the spirit answer to the posture of humanity there are some times when my flesh wants to do what it wants when in my flesh if I make the mistake that it craves and desire I would mess up my ministry and forever mess up and tarnish my life but there are times I need the Holy Ghost to sit on me I need the spirit of God to sit on me to arrest My flesh Put me in a half Nelson if you must Put me in a hammer lock if you must But don't let me up God Because if my flesh gets up It's going to make a big mistake That's going to injure my spirit man Amen Whatever I'm going through I cannot afford to allow my flesh to have the control I need you Jesus To sit on me Amen Bring this flesh under subjection Arrest it so that it doesn't devastate And destroy my spiritual destiny. And I want to say that when all of this began to happen, as they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, amen. Some they were perplexed, and then the next verse said they were amazed. Pentecost, perplexed and amazed, amen. Because we all want to be amazed. We all want God in his grandiosity and wonder to come to us with a miraculous visitation and amaze us with a sensational touch. With a sensational reverb That affects our body, soul and spirit Amen But I'm here to tell you today Amen It's the craving of the heart of humanity To be amazed by a miracle working God But sometimes He allows us to be perplexed Before He amazes us Sometimes He allows us to go to a dark valley Of uncertainty where we cannot see With vision or clarity Where we feel all alone in the shadow Sometimes he allows us like Paul and Silas To be shackled and bound at the midnight hour Perplexed, what are we going to do? We've been beaten with rods And it doesn't look like we're going to get out of the prison But when they begin to sing praises unto God Even in the midst of their perplexity All of a sudden, they were amazed That the prison began to shake And their chains fell off their heads And the doors were opening And they walked on out I've come to say today I've been asking him to amaze me by healing me But if he seems fit To leave me in a state of perplexity And sickness Whatever he must do I want to be tried I want to be true I want to be tested as a son of God